Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us for the Sydney Ideas event. My name is Nas Campanella, and I will be your chair this evening. Tonight, we have a hearing loop for anyone that requires that. We have Auslan interpreters, and there's also live captioning. Tonight, we are going to explore the theme, Inclusion by Design, creating an inclusive and accessible environment, with one in five Australians having some form of disability and increasing community expectations that people with disability will have access to public buildings, spaces, and transport, what approach should we be taking to ensure that we create inclusive and accessible environments? How can we develop a view of people and place that incorporates universal design principles and gives people with disability access? And importantly, how this can be done seamlessly with equity and dignity in mind. Where do we start when designing for inclusion? Who needs to be involved and when? What are we doing well in Australia and what could we be doing better? Are there international examples that we could be learning from? What do our architects, builders, designers and planners need to know about the interaction of disability with the environment to support universal design principles? I'm going to be putting those questions and many more to our panel who each bring their personal and professional perspectives on inclusive and accessible environments to the conversation here tonight. As I mentioned, uh, my name is Naz, I will be your chair. I happen to be a, a journalist and newsreader for the ABC and Triple J. I also happen to be totally blind. I lost my vision when I was about six months old when blood vessels burst in the back of my eyes, tearing my retinas away. I have a tiny bit of light perception and the ability to see some shadows, but nothing else. I also have a condition called Charcot-Marie-Tooth Neuropathy, or CMT. It's a condition that affects my hands, arms, legs and feet. So the muscle tone, the balance and the sensitivity, which means that I'm not able to read braille. I am one of the many people who sees value and importance and is really privileged to be here tonight to talk to you about inclusion and uh, accessible design. Before we go any further, I'd just like to invite Jeremy Heathcote, Manager, Indigenous Employment and Cultural Diversity, to give an acknowledgement of country, please. Kaiwo, Kaiwo, Kauma. Thank you, Naz. Um, it's really great to be here tonight, and also like to thank Penny for inviting me to come along and provide acknowledgement of country. It's really important um, for our society, for our people, to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. Um, I'm not from this area, I'm from Newcastle, and I'm from what's called the Wobbleco Nation, and the words I spoke at the start there are actually traditional words. It translates um, roughly to a great gathering or a great gathering of people, and it really is great to be gathered here tonight. And this is the third event I've been involved with at this university um, for this inclusion week, and the numbers continue to grow. And it's so great to see everyone here, staff, students, and community. This early inclusion week is very important for our university, our community, and it's really important for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as well. Um, a lot of people don't know that I think it's 48% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people either have a disability or a long-term health issues. Almost 8% have profound disability. And we're 2.1% more likely to have a disability in our community than mainstream Australia. So that's why it's really important that we look at Disability Inclusion Week 
and it's so important for our university. Our community are doing a lot of events during this week. Um, and it's really great to see our university do a number of events, even in the rain on Monday. A lot of people turned up, which was great. Um, yesterday was perfect, and I heard this morning's event was great as well. So it's really good to have something like this. Um, our university sits on Aboriginal land. This building all around us is Aboriginal land. And next to us here at Victoria Park is a very important part of this university, of this um, community, sorry. The land we're on today is the Gadigal people. But I also want to mention a few other nations, other clans of the nation. To the west, we've got the Wongal, Baramadigal people. To the north, um, we've got the Karingai, Karamagrave people. And we've got the Bidjigal people. I mention them because this area was a, a very important trading spot for Aboriginal people. And these clans of, of the 29 clans of this nation came here on a regular basis. They came here to trade. The tracks around here, the Parramatta Road, for example, is a, is a trading track, Enmore Road, King Street. So they're actually Aboriginal tracks that's been uh, made into roads by Europeans when they came. So it's really important that we acknowledge that this is Aboriginal land. It's still connected to this land. Um, our Aboriginal people never ceded this land. So this has always been a strong connection. Um, I live personally in Redfern, which is across the road pretty much, and it's a very important part of this community as well. And our university does a lot of work with our local community. So it's really important to pay our respects to the elders, past, present and emerging. And also, if anyone's here today from uh, Aboriginal community, welcome you as well. Um, this is Gadigal land of your own nation, and it's always be our land, it always will be. And when you go home, make sure you're on Aboriginal land as well, so treat that um, with respect. So I'll pass on back to Naz. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy, and I would also like to pay my respects to elders past and present. Next, I'd like to invite Stephen Phillips, Vice Principal Operations and Executive Sponsor of the Disability at Work Network to officially open the event. Stephen is a member of the university's senior executive team. He's recently stepped into the role of Executive Sponsor for the university's Disabilities at Work Network, or DAWN. Please welcome Steve. Thank you, Naz, and can I take the opportunity as well to pay my respects to Elders past and present, and also thank Penny um, for inviting me to come along today. I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing the panel and um, also hearing the kinds of challenging questions that no doubt will be thrown up um, as we go through uh, the proceedings today. Um, this event is the highlight of a week uh, of activities that take place at the university where we're celebrating Disability Inclusion Week. We celebrate this week every year with a program of events that we deliver to both the university and the broader community. This is the fifth Disability Inclusion Week that we're celebrating. And in the previous four years, we've had quite thought-provoking and challenging topics that we've considered, including topics such as um, disability and sexuality, uh, employment uh, and leadership. This particular topic is very relevant to the university, uh, given our built environment. We have a 168-year history here. We're not far from the Quad, uh, which is uh, one of the most iconic buildings, one of the most visited and photographed um, in Sydney. Uh, through to buildings that we've recently delivered, which a number of you are using, uh, buildings such as the Abercrombie, uh, the Charles Perkins Centre, very iconic, very accessible. New buildings that we're literally passing over at the moment for occupancy, which includes the new Faculty Arts and Social Sciences building, uh, the Life and Environmental Sciences building as well. Uh, and many of you will know that we've got hoardings and cranes all over the place, which uh, recognises uh, that there's still a more ambitious program that we're working on, including buildings such as the Chow Chak Wing Museum um, and the Susan Wakefield Building um, for the Faculty of Medicine and Health. 
Again, all of those uh, providing uh, more access for our community and the people who use the university. Jeremy's already mentioned, and I'd also just like to, to acknowledge in passing as well, that this site is deeply co connected with Aboriginal Sydney. Uh, and the people of the groups that Jeremy mentioned who have lived and used the very rich landscape that exists here. While we have a long history on this site, uh, we're also very much focused on the future and the challenges and the opportunities that that will bring. As I mentioned, we have an ambitious um, infrastructure program uh, that will play out over you know, decades to come. And it's really up to us to make sure that we use that opportunity to create both inclusive um, and accessible environments. As I've been reading over the last week or so a number of articles and, and different readings, one statement uh, that I saw uh, has resonated with me and I thought I'd mention it tonight. The one argument for accessibility that doesn't get made nearly enough is how extraordinarily better it makes some people's lives. How many opportunities do we have to dramatically improve people's lives just by doing our jobs a little better? And I think that that's an important statement when we think about the topic that we have tonight around creating an inclusive and accessible environment. So it's my pleasure today um, to open the Sydney Ideas event on behalf of the university and very much look forward uh, to spending the evening with you. Thanks, Naz, and back to you. Thank you, Stephen. I'd now like to introduce the members of our panel tonight. The first one is Jason Barker, Principal Design for Dignity, Proprietary Limited and Access Consultant. Second, Andrew Hartwell, Chair, Disability at Work Network, the University of Sydney. Sandy Lightfoot, Academic Discipline Specialist, Occupational Therapy, Faculty of Health Sciences, the University of Sydney. Can I get our panel just by beginning by telling us a bit about your background and interest in accessible uh, and inclusive design? Andrew, would you like to go first? Well, uh, clearly I have an obvious interest in accessibility at the university. As you can see, I uh, am a person who uses a wheelchair. Uh, I joined the university about four years ago, and I've sort of, I would say, my involvement in various uh, disability-led initiatives has happened almost purely by accident, uh, along with my entire career here, actually, I think. <laughs> I had uh, an injury from a motor vehicle accident uh, just over 19 years ago, as of last month. I um, grew up in the UK, if you can't tell by this voice, and but was living at the time in a very quiet English country village out in the middle of nowhere, virtually a hamlet that was sort of a pub and a few villages and nothing else. So, and this, my injury happened when I was 10. So at that time, living out in a very isolated community um, with little exposure to other people with dis uh, disabilities and things like that has really shaped me as a person sort of in my adulthood um, and in understanding that the greatest thing that I can be, do is helping raise awareness and making people, people with disabilities feel included, feel welcome, uh, and moving that debate forward. So that's how I started getting involved with various initiatives um, around the university. I worked briefly with the um, disability services team in helping set up their academic uh, plan model for students. Uh, uh, that was something I actually got paid for at the university. That was a, uh, that was a real job. And uh, from there, I was invited to become uh, a member of the Disability at Work Network, um, which is a group focused um, specifically around staff and professionals in the university 
um, and they're sort of uh, becoming an advocate for um, their issues sort of within the university community. And I was very honored last year to be invited to take up the chair role of that position. Um, jokes and puns aside, that I already came with the furniture. Uh, and uh, as you can see, I'm here now, um, happily sitting up on this stage, ready to talk to you about uh, universal design within the university. Um, so that's me uh, here. Who's next? Sandy or Sandy. I've been an occupational therapist now for about 35 years, and my passion is actually to let people work as independently, live as independently, undertake what they want to do as independently. How did that happen? I've had a brother with a disability. I have a son with a disability, so I've seen it from the other side. Most people talk about disability as being a physical manifestation, but ours has been cognitive, and ours has also been on the ASD spectrum. So seeing it from a viewpoint of aesthetics and temperature and ambience is really important. And what I've actually seen in the built environment over the years, whether it's public or whether it's private dwellings, is the disenabling factors about it. We don't tend to build buildings that allow us to age in place. We don't tend to build buildings that actually encourage the strengths for people, no matter what their actual abilities are. And that's been a passion of mine, because I firmly believe that everybody has the right to live as inclusively as they wish to, as independently as they wish to, taking the risks that they wish to within the environments that they wish to. And that's why I've gotten involved as well. I do teach students at university and my passion is to teach them to have a look at the environment and how we can actually enable people to live in that environment from a collaborative approach. I tend to find sometimes with the rules and expectations and codes of practice, we're not listening to people who are actually functioning within the environment to look at their individualised needs and what they would like to see within the environment. So I'm here to present a slightly different perspective because I will bring in some of the issues with what we're doing with big environments and big land releases for houses that don't age in place and that still need to be modified to allow somebody to live within them. Over to you, Jason. Wonderful. Um, I'm Jason Barker. I spent, I guess, 20 years in financial services and ended up... Um, looking after the branch network at Westpac. And in the early 2000s, you know, had a, had a job of actually going about making branches more accessible. So I had a bit of a perspective on, on accessibility and at the end of my time at Westpac was the executive sponsor for their disability action plan. And in 2009 moved to the Australian Network on Disability. And, you know, spent a good number of years helping uh, quite progressive Australian government departments and, and corporations actually work out how can they get better at including people with disability in all aspects of their business, which is the key Australian network on disability um, theme. So I got to meet lots of great people trying to do lots of great things and um, you know, got to a point where actually thinking about the property side of life, it was quite clear some really great practices, there were some people that were wanting to do some really good things but really didn't have the tools or the understanding how to do it. So um, there's a couple of case studies we might look through later, but um, you know, my passion is really around getting the built environment right and, and getting people to lift their aspirations from sort of minimum compliance to a world where you know, all sorts of abilities are actually considered when the design brief is put out. So that's my life. <laughs> Guys, where do we start when it, when it comes to uh, providing um, inclusive design and, and accessible environments? Where do we even begin? Anyone can go first. 
I think the people, I think, is probably the first place to start with. That uh, consultation is, I think, where Definitely. it's probably the first point, if not order. Like uh, we have a, we're very lucky to be living in Australia in a lot of respects. We are, as of this year, we've celebrated the 25th anniversary of the Disability uh, Discrimination Act, so showing that we we have very much an embedded culture of of being progressive and wanting to do right by people, which I think is, you know, that is the very vital point to start with. Um, we've now reached a stage where, as Sandy mentioned, we've got a lot of um, things like land releases going to large um, uh, new housing developments. We've got a population that's growing, a population that's aging as well, um, and that is inclusive of, as well, uh, the community of dis disability. So we have a vital need at this point to be thinking about the future and consulting with various groups to ensure that those needs are, needs are met. We have a tendency, I think, at the moment to be relying on codification, rules, uh, legislation um, that somewhat de uh, depersonalizes the debate. People tend to think that, oh, we have written this code or this rule or law, everything's fine. As long as we follow that, we don't need to do anything further. Um, that's a great start. That's a structural point to begin with. We are now needing to think about um, looking at um, taking that and being personal in our approach, sort of understanding what do individual people need and asking them what they need and not being afraid to trust that these people are experts in themselves. Um, so that would be my opinion. I would agree with you there, Jason, um, Andrew, because my issue is everybody thinks it's one size fits all and the codes and the legislation don't always fit all. There are people that are outliers. I had the privilege of being put in a disability-specific room in a hotel for the last two nights. Yes, it had a um, clear space, it had a modified bathroom, but it was made for somebody who was sitting down and I stand up. So here I was bending down to try and brush my teeth. The funny thing was that they had the storage space above my head, so if you were in a wheelchair, you couldn't reach it. So whilst they did look at the codes and the standards, they're minimum design requirements. So we need to collaborate to say, okay, what else do we need? We've gone past the stage of minimum design requirements. We're looking at if we're going to have inclusivity, we need to make sure it embraces all and takes a look at the footprint of equipment that's being used, carers that are being used. And as we actually spoke to a person on Monday, if you've got a guide dog, where does a guide dog go to a toilet in a public building? Because we don't look at it that way. Where do we look at glare on floors in shopping centres and lights and all of those sorts of things? Where do we look at colour? Where do we look at noise? Because we tend to look at bricks and mortar. But we've got to bring that in too, because for some people, just having a lot of people in a room like this is enough to set them. And also too, if it's really quite loud, it's enough to make them want to run away and hide too. So we've got to take a look at those subtle components that can totally disenable somebody. And again, as Andrew said, Talk to people who live the experience. They know exactly what they're feeling. And I think public transport is a good example of that as well, where we have public transport that is archaic in some areas, and that needs to be brought up to speed. Having to jump off trains because you've got a huge step and a, an actual, pardon me, horizontal clearance is a bit of an issue too when you can't actually negotiate it because you've got poor balance. Or, as somebody said to me today through an SMS, having a garage, which is a service station that I know is going to be, allow me to fill up my car because I'm somebody in a wheelchair and I can't even access the pump to do that takes me three months before I go for a holiday. It's those sorts of issues that I have to admit that sometimes I take for granted and we need to shift that paradigm. If I, if I think about 
the process that organisations go through in terms of built environment and, and think about all the players in that process, you know, builders and architects and certifiers. Um, there's a, a real, as everyone has said, there's a really strong tendency to say, you know, what does the code say? What does the building code say? Mm. And building code's only ever intended to be minimums. But I'll also say that um, as I, over the years, have met with builders, designers, architects, my first point to them is always about how amazingly important their role is and how powerful they are. And they kind of, you know, they're people building projects and they've got a little bit of time to talk about this stuff and they kind of go, well, you know, what? And when you start explaining that, you know, um, talk about the statistics around disability, which most people know well, um, you start talking about households, you know, 3.2 million out of 8.9 million households and about, pe you know, ageing population and those sorts of things, they start to rationally understand, but that's not where you actually get the breakthrough. People kind of understand this rationally. It might happen to them, it might happen to their family. Um, it's not until you actually sort of start to explain their power in the process and that people um, have or acquire medical conditions, illnesses, injuries, but their role as designers to make um, a, an, an enabling environment or a disabling environment starts to actually, you can see lights start to come on when you're talking to people. And um, you sort of say, well, you know, you've got this power to actually um, reduce someone's disability effectively. Okay, and you're starting to get a little bit of warmth and understanding going on. And you then point out actually that the building code itself calls for safe, dignified, equitable access. And you start, people go, oh, can I get that a little bit more? And as you start teasing this out, there's a much greater willingness to actually understand that they've got a role, it's a positive role, they're interested in a fair go. Um, they're still overcoming budget issues, still overcoming other things, but there's so many good examples of organisations that then start going, well, okay, how do I do this? Um, you know, you need to tell, how big or wide should I do this? And as they start engaging with people with disability and understanding needs and understanding perspectives, have architects that have never spoken to someone who's been a wheelchair user or someone who's blind. And when you start making those connections, people then start to become little change agents of their own, um, start to work within their organisation, start to make changes. I think with what you're saying as well is, and you've said it and we've all said it, we've got to stop this minimum and it's always, we do it to the minimum. I've seen that happen when we design hospitals as well. It's always to the minimum, minimum design requirements for health facilities. So when you have a minimum, you're not going to always get everybody that needs to be encapsulated and be able to use it. So we've got to go above the minimum to look at best practice. And what is best practice for the people that is using it? I think there's a question too about... Um, if you think about standards and compliance and all that code stuff that, you know, is regulation, there's a question of um, depth and there's a question of breadth. So the depth question is, um, you know, how many people does this particular standard assume? So often the standard's based on... Well, our Australian standard's uh, based on data from 1983. It's only based on people that are 18 to 60 years old. So if you think about disability, at age 50, I've, you know, there's a one in four chance that someone in, in, my, in the 50s will have disability. In the 60s, you're talking one in three. In your 70s, it's one in two. And in your 90s, it's like 85% of people. And so our standards are based on people that are up to 60 years old. It doesn't, specifically doesn't include 
the dimensions or the space needed for mobility scooters. So back in 2015, we had 40,000 mobility scooters in Australia. We had 200,000 wheelchairs, but they're only looking at 80% of this, you know, the 80th percentile of wheelchair. So there's a, a depth thing, which is our, that's not very, com not very comprehensive in terms of coverage, but width is a real problem. So our standards don't cover furniture, for access around furniture. Our standards don't cover kitchen design in office spaces. Our standards have got nothing to say with how someone with disability will get out of a burning building. So emergency evacuation, there's nothing. So if you have colleagues in a high-rise office building and have a conversation with them about their personal emergency evacuation plan, um, you have a very difficult conversation that says you're not allowed in the, in the stairwell because you're considered to be a trip hazard. And, and that's the law right now. So, you know, if you look overseas, um, there's an international standard, um, IS21542. It's got a picture of what the stairwell should look like with the safe haven in it. The, in, sorry, I'm carrying on a little bit, but in March 2015, the Australian Building Codes Board was presented with a business case around actually fixing the code going forward. And uh, their conclusion in March 2015 was that the intangible benefits are unlikely to outweigh the costs. Do people get what that means? The intangible benefits, what, what do you think the intangible benefit is? It's someone's life. So you know, there's a breadth question as well. Our standards don't cover enough. Very, very important point. Um, what are we doing well in Australia? Well, can we have five minutes? <laughs> <laughs> and then you can have another I, 10 minutes on where, where we can improve, yeah? Look, I think <laughs> the fact that we're talking about it is something. It's not something that's been hidden under the carpet, which it used to be quite a few years ago. It's acknowledging that we need to do something, and that's a start. And it's acknowledging, too, that maybe our standards and our codes need to be reviewed and revised to, to be more encompassing and more enabling, as we've been discussing here as well. And I think it's also starting to look at collaboration as opposed to, we are making this determination and this is what you're going to build to. So it's being able to talk to those people that have an added interest into it and then start making a, a case to why we need to do things the way that we can incorporate anybody and everybody who wishes to be involved. I, I think um, it's interesting. We, we focus a lot on the process involving builders, architects, certifiers, and that part of the process. Um, there's a, a huge audience um, or another group there which are actually the people that are requesting the owners of a fit-out. So, um, if it's Sydney Uni, the, the people that decide you're going to have a new building or the, the corporation that's moving to a new headquarters. Um, I see a lot of those organisations too late in the stage but increasingly saying, I want to do something better than minimum. I want, especially Australian Network on Disability members, um, are, are always sort of going, I want, to, I want to do better than minimum compliance. So that's encouraging. Um, they often hit the barrier that the, the concrete's nearly set and it's just too, getting too late in the process. So one thing is actually getting earlier on, but there's that intention in increasing will. Um, back in 2009, effective from, uh, well, effective from 2011, we, it's now compulsory that you meet minimums, whereas before that it wasn't compulsory, it wasn't built into the building code that you needed to even meet the minimum requirements. So. 
I think over time the long-term economics will start to say to landlords that are reluctant to invest in accessibility, you're going to find it really hard to actually be renting out your premises in the future because um, people start to build in the cost of actually upgrading it to the current building code. So hopefully long-term there's a price signal that, that says we've got to start getting in and fielding, fixing our own building, our old building stock now, otherwise we're not going to achieve those long-term rent outcomes that we want. One of the other areas that we're doing some really good um, progress in or making some really good progress in is with local councils. The number of local councils now that have disability access groups and committees that are taking a look at things prior to them being built. So they're looking at them from the plan and saying, well, no, this is actually an entrapment area or no, this circulation space isn't as wide as it should be. But it's getting people on board that may be builders and architects and maybe OTs, but also users of the product that do have a disability so that there is a say there. And that's been a very big shift. About 10 years ago, those committees really didn't exist to the extent that they do now. So are you actually seeing them say, we need a paved driveway here, we need a pathway here, we need a paved road? Because I think sometimes we get stuck into thinking about buildings, but we need to think outside of buildings. It's how do you access the community? How do you actually get into your building? And seeing the local councils coming on board that way is really a good thing to see as well. There's a lot of good work in Victoria. I think Victoria, in a lot of ways, is um, leading the way. They're you know, more, uh, more into the changing places uh, toilet rollout. They're doing um, a lot of local councils, too, particularly, doing some good things down there. So. Andrew, do you have anything else that you'd like to add? Oh, I think Sandy kind of jumped on me with that. It's the fact that we're talking about it is that the evolution of the conversation more than anything, uh, like I said, though. Of we are, you know, we are living in a time. We are living in a time of, of significant change. We are, we are lucky to be going through the fact that we have the NDIS or NDIA. Um, I mean, it's a groundbreaking thing that no, exists. I don't think anywhere else in the world. That so Australia should be very much commended for that, regardless of you know the, the implementation issues as they may be having with it. Um, but it's still a remarkable. Um, uh, the fact that it even exists is just amazing, and it's this idea that. To be all sitting here now having this conversation is about the fact that we are not just resting on any laurels and that we may be talking about things that still need to be done, but that's, that is a great achievement because it means that things have already been done, that we can then be in a point where we can move the conversation forward, evolve our thinking, mature those ideas and, uh, and uh, yeah, sort of move things forward. Um, so, yeah, just a small point there. And back to what Sandy was touching upon with local councils, I know with um, my particular local council, I moved into a brand new area a year ago, never really been in that community before, in walking around with my cane instructor who was showing me how to navigate, you know, to the various shops and bus stops, etc. I noticed so many things, you know, there weren't tactile markers that led up to bus stops, so I had no idea where I was to wait for a bus. There were ramps on either sides of roads that were not to the correct gradient for wheelchairs. They didn't align, so if I was to step off um, the pram ramp on one side of the road, it didn't align necessarily with the other on the other side, so I would end up you know, crisscrossing through traffic in a road, and it just became dangerous. It was, and so it was really positive for me to contact the council and find that they did have a disability action plan in place, they had a committee, that was willing to meet with me and they did quite quickly and work has been done. Um, and it's fantastic to see that progress and, and how willing and keen they were to make changes 
for the for the community. Um, and so, yeah, that was really, really positive. Are there any international examples that we can take some, you know, work from and, and use in Australia? I, I can think of a few. Um, some of it's just you go on holidays and notice stuff. You know, my, my, um, my family gets tired of me landing in an airport and dragging them into the nearest accessible toilet to see, to see what it looks like in Japan. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, my, my wife's an accountant keeps going, this will be a tax deduction. <laughs> um, so um, it, it's, it's kind of interesting. It, 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 and to take Japan, I mean, just, just quickly, you, you literally walk into the bathroom in Japan and there's things like... Um, uh, instead of the wash basin just being a wash basin, there's handrails on. It's, it's an ambulant wash basin. So I can hold on, or actually just thinking about it, I'm not quite sure if you hold on with one hand and wash with the other, but, any, um, you know, accessible wash basin. Urinals that are actually, you know, for the blokes, there's urinals that are designed in a universal way. They're for everything from little kids to really tall people. Um, the trains there, you know, as you're walking through the carriage, there'll be tactile and braille telling you what your, the seat numbers are as you walk along without actually having to sort of rely on just vision to see. In New Zealand, um, a really good one to look up, Line Square in Wellington. Uh, it's a essentially using uh, eye beacons to enable people and an iPhone. So the eye beacon's a little thing sending out a... Um, a, a signal, you pick it up through your iPhone app and it tells you where you are. So what they've actually done is also set up retail stores. So when you get to the store, you know what it is, what it sells and what the layout is like inside, which requires updating and whatever. But they've thought through that connection that Sandy was talking about. They've thought through um, train station, the mall, the retail space, and how do we make that somewhere that someone who is blind can actually find their way around in a kind of modern and um, technologically kind of friendly way. I mean, there's a heap. Um, interestingly, after the earthquakes, the Christchurch, Christchurch it was Christchurch, wasn't it, yeah. earthquake, yeah. 2011? Um, when that presented a huge opportunity for that community to, to take a step back and say, how are we going to rebuild? Is it going to be let's great, let's do the minimum code. Um, and they couldn't actually get the codes changed fast enough. So they came up with an accessibility charter that said, okay, what we're going to aim for is, you know, we're going to have, you know, it's going to be dignified and we're going to have above compliance and we're going to set about doing this in a, in a radically different way. So I think it's really nice that all around the world there's really great examples if you look for them. Hopefully we don't have to have an earthquake here to get the same level. Um, there, there's times, Andrew, where I actually, I, I actually think we just about need, need a, um, an earthquake without human loss to fix some of the buildings we've got. But, um, yeah. Sandy, did you want to add anything? No, I think um, Jason's covered it all. Well, I've started to cover it. Well, you started to. How long have we got? Oh. <laughs> Um, a broad question, but where where is sort of where could we go to in terms of improvements from here? What's I guess if each of you was to say one thing that you I know there's probably a lot, but one thing that you would want to see tomorrow in terms of improvements? I can't prioritise. I can. Go for it. Go. Um, <laughs> if I if I could do one thing, I'd get Sandy to go to the School of Architecture and have the School of Architecture um, have an OT component or a universal design component 
So I speak to so many architects that don't even know what it is, that really don't, don't have a clue. Um, we need to start solving this problem now, back at school. And I would agree with you, and I would support that too, because I know we've had quite a bit of a discussion on that, to see the other side. So it's not just bricks and mortar, it's functionality. And that's the issue that we've got to look at, is that functionality. And then I'll put the cherry on top of that by saying we actually need more um, of a research focus. We don't have enough going on at the research level to, uh, as to uh, you know, the sort of PhD and master's level. So I would say that we not only need to be teaching it, but we need to be, uh, we need to be supporting and encouraging research-led um, mm. academic, academic uh, study in those areas as well. So I think particularly within the university, that's you know, what we should be aiming for is that we are a centre of education and we should always be focused on using that as our greatest power mm. so that we can educate. Yeah. Um, and drive research. We need um, to be designing for people, not the cover of Architecture Monthly. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And involving people with disabilities in those discussions and those yeah. teachings. Very much. Or we so should be saying to Architecture Monthly, Finally. this is why you should be focusing this particular building on uh, your cover because yeah. it's. I inclusive. think we've got to go out of the um, silos of I am architecture, I am health sciences, I am art, I'm interior design. I think we need to break those barriers down and become quite inclusive in taking all of those professions on and saying, we're looking at the same endpoint. Let's work together from a different perspective. I would dearly love, and I've said it quite a few times, to see undergrad OT students or master students in classes with architects or interior designers to see the different perspective, to be able to actually acknowledge where strengths and weaknesses across the different professions sit, and then getting users in to say, this is reality, guys, and this is what you need to understand. Can I have another one since I went first? <laughs> Why not? Oh, super. Um, my other one would be, um, I mentioned before that you know, we've got this, the, the legislation that empowers our National Construction Code in relation to access um, came out in 2010 and it gets reviewed every five years. Our National Construction Code gets reviewed now every three years. So 2010 to 2015 was the review period for the the premises standard, the thing that empowers the, the code. Um, so 2015, 2016 the report came, was sent to government. 2017 the government replied to the report and was very happy to reply to the report that it supported most of its recommendations because most of the recommendations said we should set up a subcommittee. And so that subcommittee will form but won't report before the National Construction Code gets updated in 2019, so the 2015 review is likely to be put into practice in 2022, which is after the next five-year review of the premises standards. Ah, so um, if I had my way, I'd sort of, I'd, you'd go to a point where actually there was an alignment between the legislation, the premises standards, the, prim, the legislation, sorry, the National Construction Code, and the Australian standards, and actually get it in a cycle where you can start improving and, and get continuous improvement. Take feedback of good examples, find where the gaps are. Um, do some research that can actually be applied before it's out of date. So I think you know, as, a, as a regulatory, and if it starts to be every three years, then actually you have a hope that the amount of change that starts to happen, the minimum compliance then starts to get a little bit more testing every three years. At the moment, it's, it's just so far apart. You, you've got no regulatory, real regulatory change supporting, you know, that the, we'll just go for minimum. Minimum stays minimum for an awfully long time. 
What do our architects, designers, builders and planners need to know about disability and the interaction with disability and, and the environment to support universal design principles? I think it's right there in the title that it's universal. I think it's, a, uh, it's the point that we, we try and, again, it's going back to this idea of minimum compliance, but it's this idea that, uh, that people can be grouped very easily, but they can't be, particularly within uh, the persons with disability community. No disability is entirely the same. Like, if you were to put myself as a paraplegic next to another one, we would be, uh, uh, we would be as unique as fingerprints. Like, uh, we'd have different injury levels. Uh, we'd have different muscles that do and do not work. Even though on paper we could be exactly the same definition of what our disability is, we would have entirely different needs. So it's that idea that um, universal design needs to be... Uh, fully aware of the fact that everything is unique and that you, you can't entirely um, legislate for um, black and white. It's all about that consultation. It's understanding who's going to be using that space and who may well intend to use that space and not, and again, planning for the future rather than for the, for the long-term future rather than for the immediate future. I suppose specific examples are the idea that we're moving away from just a mechanical-like definition of accessibility, like, oh, put a ramp in here, put a lift in there, um, to an understanding of particularly technological advances. I was reading a very interesting paper about how we really haven't moved that forward since the 1970s in terms of even though we've innovated so rapidly and so quickly, um, in so, say even in the last 10 years, we're not really understanding how um, technological in innovations though they have technically improved society, are in some ways actually causing further barriers because, say, for example, um, use of screen reader technology. We have probably have about 400,000 people globally who may need to use a screen reader. Um, and that integrates with a lot of technology like PDF formats in Adobe. But, you need to, but if people don't understand that if you don't originally author the document in the right format of Adobe, it's not going to work with that person's screen reader. I'm smiling because I have that experience almost on a weekly basis. I have a screen reader on my laptop as we speak and there are people who I tell time and time again, you have to send them in a Word doc, don't put them in funky spreadsheets, I don't care, and they still send them. And it's fine, you just have to reiterate. Um, Sandy and Jason, do you want to add anything on that question? Oh, look, I totally agree on that as well. And I think, you know, it's not only that every person is unique, it's every building is unique, every community is unique, every topography and geography is unique, that you can't just simply say, we're going to build this mansion in this area and do it continually over and over and over again because it doesn't work. So I totally agree with what Andrew's saying in terms of making it very individualistic and not categorising everybody as a definition or, a, or as a diagnosis or as a condition or as an age group. It will change and function will change as well. And I think I had heard somebody I was talking to the other day say it quite nicely. We design houses for now, but we've got to think about the user 10 years down the track who buys that house, who's going to be totally different. And we're not looking at being able to adapt the house easily at lower cost. So whilst we're looking at them now, it's certainly not going to be a housing stock we can use in the future. Um, I think to sort of go back to, to what I said, is, I, mean, I agree with those things. But my experience for architects, designers, people in that process, the light really goes on when they understand 
about dignity and equity because I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning and says, oh, I've got a great idea. I'm going to design a product that's complete crap. It doesn't happen like that. They don't sit there going, I'm going to make this, I'm going to make this bottle impossible to open. I'm going to make these instructions so small you can't read it. People don't start with that mindset. They do their job. They've been told their job is to you know, design to standard and someone will check the code at the end. Um, when you, they start understanding that the equity and dignity aspects of that, human beings in that process respond quite well, um, start to change a view. Um, they can't always achieve everything, but you know, they, they, when they understand the impact on the person, um, they respond a whole lot better than being told you've got to design to code. There's, I think we need messages of motivation and encouragement for that industry as well as just kind of condemning them. So, Are there guidelines on designing for dignity? And can you oh, tell us I that? Yes. That. <laughs> um, universal design is a set of principles and it teaches people essentially how to think about designing for a large number of, or, or the, the greatest number without having to go back and fix it later. Design for dignity is a, a company I've got, but it was a term that came out of work that Australian Network on Disability did with Lendlease and Westpac. And it was exactly that process of trying to teach architects about universal design. And they, they kind of went, when you talk about dignity, you could see them go, that's what I want to do. Oh, that's why I'm in this business. I want to create legacy. I want to build great buildings. I want to build stuff that's beautiful and usable. Um, but talking about universal design, they kind of got that, but they'd still go, but what does it look like? You know, can, can you shortcut this for me? Um, Andrew talked about every person's different. They're trying to go, well, how do I design? If every person's different, what do I design? And so Len Lease, through this process, actually went, I want to, we want to tell people about the experience that we've had. And it was in relation to Barangaroo. Um, and they're very open. It's like, how do we, what's disability about? How many people are the, the experienced disability? Um, a couple of case studies about what they found, and then some principles and, and their learnings. It was like, you know, it's no good putting you, your benches 200 metres apart because there's some old people that need them 60 metres apart. And it was practical stuff like that that, that their team needed. Um, they understood the experience, they understood why, um, but tell us what we've got to do. Tell, give us some more guidance. So it's in between sort of universal design and building code, it's actually, if you do these things, you're doing better than you were before. So that's those sorts of guidelines. And they actually then sponsored some work with Commonwealth Bank as well. But they're available through the Australian Network on Disability website. Um, or if you, you look at mine, they're there as well. I think, you know, I like what the Japanese do do, because they've got very fluid internal houses. You can move walls around mm. so that you can actually change it to suit your layout. So even though you might have an external house that looks the same, you're able to move everything to suit yourself. And I think that's a really nice concept because it will change as you age. So when you're talking about ageing in place, you're doing it already because you're either taking away walls or putting in walls or changing that sort of situation. Maybe that's something we should look at a research project here for. Is it not also just how you see, how people see disability? I mean, instead of seeing it in, in a type of medical model way, just see it as, a, you know, this is a person, this is what we need, um, and this is how, you know, this is what they want, that, that kind of 
I guess it's about changing attitude as well. Very much so, I think, because we do work from a lot of medical models where they focus on disability and structure and function as such. But you've got culture, you've got individual beliefs and preferences, you've got spirituality, which all comes into the mix as well, which need to be considered when you're looking at design too. Do you think that's slowly changing, Andrew? It is. It is, it is slowly changing. And we can't, and it's not a sense of like wanting to be um, aggressively militant about it. It's like the best way to catch flies is with honey and vinegar. It's just understanding that people actually probably do want to do the right thing, and that it's about encouraging them to feel comfortable in asking, "What do you need?" Uh, as well, it's we can't blame people for not knowing something, um, but you know, we should be making inclusion the easy option for people. I mean, it was, we would, uh, that point raised about uh, the fact that uh, you're that landlords would eventually be essentially punished by the fact that their, that their buildings weren't up to code and not um, able to make the money. So it's always coming back down to that dollars sign again, which is uh, both good and bad in the sense that if we as a, as a community can be sort of manipulating that, uh, um, that dollar sign in our favor, then, we, then that's fine. But uh, really what we want to be doing is making it, making it just easy and positive for people because people want to feel good about doing the right thing and they and therefore and that's how we're going to achieve it and you recently bought a place Andrew can you tell us what that process was like and in terms of finding the right place but then making sure it was suitable for, for you and your needs oh god well I <laughs> <laughs> we don't have all night no. well we actually only just finished moving in about two weeks ago and we still don't have all the flooring down and uh, the, but the bathrooms are fine and that was kind of the priority and things like that so that's been uh, interesting but it, the, the idea for me around searching for property of course is, uh, is always it's going to take longer the first I think again the first problem with uh, look searching for property for with when you've got a, a, a significant physical disability is that the principal thing that I valued is uh, access to services. Uh, so it's that need to be near infrastructure, where at the place where I work. So I've, I've bought in Newtown, so already uh, um, people probably be looking at me like, how, you know, what on earth are you doing being able to afford in Newtown? It's like, I can't afford in Newtown, I've got a mortgage forever. Um, but yeah, uh, being close to a hospital, we've got the RPA, being close to the university, I mean, all of those things immediately add uh, a premium for somebody with a disability in terms of being able to live well. Like if I was to live, you know, two hours out by commute, by commute, I would I would not have the same quality or well-being of, of my life as I would by my, by living in Newtown. So I understand that that's what I need to um, have a good life, and that meant has meant that I sucked it up and I was like, no, I will we will pay a bit more and and, uh, and buy a unit in Newtown rather than buy uh, a buyout in a one of these brand new estates. Um, but how did you even start? Did you have to go and sit down with a real estate agent and say, this is the type of property I'm looking for? Um, this is the sort of, you know, how did you go from a practical perspective? From, from well, that? that's actually, I'm a bit lucky in that respect because after my injury, my mother, who was originally uh, a personal injury lawyer, um, but, uh, decided... <laughs> Decided on the on the day of um, of my injury that she just uh, she couldn't listen to another person um, come and complain to her about about getting whiplash and uh, quit being a personal injury lawyer and became a relocation agent and specifically started uh, a business focused on finding properties for people with disabilities um, and this was back in the UK she no longer does that um, but uh, that was certainly a, something that I was already primed for. And I did a lot of research myself 
about, about the property acquisition process, because I was like, no, I know this is not going to be easy. This is going to be um, a miserable experience, but it's a great problem to have, and I'll keep telling myself that. <laughs> so it was about self-education, uh, first off, and understanding, understanding myself in terms of what my needs were, and then going on to, to um, finding, uh, say, a buyer's agent who would go out and do a lot of the work um, like back and forth for me, and being able to um, be confident in telling him what I needed and that he needed to go, rather than relying on him saying, oh, this is fine, like, this, has got, this meets the codes, blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, no, what I need is this. Person-centered approach. Person-centered yeah, approach. Totally. Inevitably, things are you know, uh, still sort of working improvement. Like I said, we still don't have all of our flooring down, but we're in, and that's uh, uh, a huge relief. And uh, I, I know that going forward that my life is going to be you know, out of that rent trap of not being able to uh, necessarily consult with a landlord about, say, oh, I, can, I, can I change the bathroom here, do this, do that. Um, so I certainly feel a greater sense of freedom. But uh, that's the, potentially the problem, particularly uh, with um, inner, inner city properties, is that that's uh, come at a high cost. And that is a problem that, uh, that people with disabilities are going to face, is that to live in the right kind of areas, for them to live at their maximum well-being, is in areas where everyone else really wants to live. So yeah. that's uh, the big takeaway for me. I was very much the same, in the same boat when uh, I bought a year ago. So I met with several real estate agents in, within the areas we were looking, had meetings with them, explained my needs, what we wanted in, in a property. And really, similar to Andrew, it came down to location. I needed to be able to walk to the shops to do my groceries. I can't drive. I need to be able to walk to the doctor, need to be able to get the bus. Um, it came down to location, and, and Andrew's right, it comes at a premium, which um, is unavoidable in Sydney, isn't it? And, um, but, but especially for people um, with a disability who, who need, those, need to be close to those services. I might now open it up to the floor. If anyone has a question, please pop your hand up. We've got a couple of roving mics that will go around, and one of the uni reps will um, point you out. Please say your name when you get the mic, and don't be shy. Hi, um, I'm Sophie. I'm currently studying here, doing primary education, and my honours I've been looking into inclusive education. And I think, um, even though I've been reading and researching over a year, which probably isn't much compared to you guys, but um, I still struggle to see or to like understand what it could look like in a practical sense. And I really liked the uh, like the ideas you guys had before about consulting people and asking people what they need. Um, but obviously, like, with schools, especially primary schools, the, pe the people who are involved are children. Um, how do you allow schools to be more inclusive when every school's different, every school has different kids that are coming and leaving? And, yeah. <laughs> I think in my time, and I have have negotiated and spoken to and collaborated with schools, it's coming from the very basis of having an understanding of what is a disability in the first instance and attitudes to what, you know, towards disability and making reasonable adjustment. And I'm not talking about reasonable adjustment just in buildings. I'm talking about reasonable adjustment in how we teach children and how we teach children with additional or special needs and being able to have that workflow and have a component where teachers are taught to do that. Having had a child that has gone through the education system and looking at inclusive um, abilities with him, it has been a difficult battle being able to have teachers understand too, particularly when they change from year to year to year, 
So something like that needs to be brought into place as well. So it's not, okay, we're going to have one child with a disability, we'll get you all together now, we'll talk about it now, and then we don't do it again. I think it's something that needs to be done annually, every year, at the start of the school year, or when we've got another child that comes in, because it will be different and it will be a challenge. And saying that too, then it evolves out into the actual built environment because you've got risks, you've got open spaces, you've got um, areas where a child can hide. Having a look at then the schoolyard, and I've done that too, I've gone in and done an audit on a school and said, your pavers are going to be a trip hazard for a child who actually has mild TP. So you need to have a consideration of how we change that so if they do fall, they're not going to injure themselves. Looking at task lighting as opposed to just generalised lighting too for somebody who does have issues with their eyesight, so they're not expecting them to be in a big classroom with open lights like this, but they have task lighting that facilitates what they need. So it's some of the smaller things that come into play, not just the larger things as well. Having break times if a child is actually feeling quite um, overwhelmed or stressed, that they're able to go to a safe haven. They're able to go somewhere where they can calm down and then come back in. So I think it's all of those attitudinal as well as bricks and mortar things that we need to think about. I think as a, having gone through the education system as well, something my parents did and all my support workers um, was have meetings at the beginning and end of every term. So we would discuss as a group with the class, various class teachers, whether you know, it was one in primary school and then turned into, you know, up to seven with the different subjects in high school, we would get together and we would discuss the entire curriculum at the beginning of the term. And we would say, okay, what are the potential challenges? How are we going to overcome them? And we'd assess them at the end of the term. And we'd discuss what we'd learnt, what we'd do differently next time, what worked. And that meant that there was a framework for other students who would come after me as well. My question is um, more around uh, the idea of consultation um, uh, because one of the things that I've always been quite interested in as a person with disability myself, I have a hearing impairment. Um, I often get consulted on things, which is lovely. I have lots of opinions. I'm happy to share them. Uh, but one of the things that I've found interesting is the concept of um, you don't know what you don't know. So there have been opportunities um, that I've been given to where I've been consulted on something. So, for example, emergency evacuation. And fairly recently I was asked about emergency evacuation and they said, what do you do? And I said, well, if some, I can hear enough of the alarm to work out that it's happening, so I, I will leave the building. And also, if I don't hear the alarm, if everyone gets up and leaves, I assume that's a group activity and I follow. Um, <laughs> But at the time, and so I was pretty much right, and so the solution was, oh, I will tell a few colleagues that, you know, just to check that you're not left behind or what have you. It wasn't until a fairly long time later that it occurred to me, oh, I could have asked for a flashing light near my desk, mm. right? It just it didn't occur to me at the time. And presumably they went straight to the source, what do you need? And at the time, a very obvious solution didn't occur to me. I didn't know what I didn't know. When, which is odd because I'd heard about flashing light alarms. I don't know what happened. So my question then becomes, how do we address actually equipping people with disability who are being consulted, which is great, they're ahead of the game, and educating them on how to advocate for themselves? You don't know what you don't know. How do you address that? That is hard. That is hard. I, I think it, it is really interesting. I mean, your, your emergency, the visual alarms thing is, is one thing. You know, I find, I find the same thing. I see things in the built environment and... and, and taking checklists going, was at Deaf Society um, of New South Wales out in Parramatta, and their lift, if you think about that experience of using a lift, if 
uh, you are deaf and there's an emergency, uh, or if you're someone actually that, that has a speech impairment and it's an emergency situation, well, what happens now? So if you press the button and you're expected to communicate verbally, how are those instructions going to be sent and, and received? And so in New South Wales, Deaf Society, um, there's, I don't know if it's still there, but they have an SMS phone number. You can SMS. So, you know, SMS is something um, uh, I think originally was actually designed with the deaf community in mind. And so those sorts of insights um, are really valuable. And it's how everyone comes to know that, I'm, I'm not quite sure of the answer, but there's such good examples all over the place. And it's incumbent, I mean, I guess it's like people like me that actually go to corporations that want to do better and go, well, there's a good example over here and there's a good one over here and there's a good one over here. And the, the having people with disability, there's actually another example. Um, uh, I did a set of guidelines with Lendlease and Commonwealth Bank and through that process over the last 18 months have had many, many, many groups of people with disability come through and they've been consulting and understanding exactly what those issues are. And it's fascinating to watch that as well because everyone's got a slightly, to Andrew's point, you know, two people in the wheelchair, different reach, different perspectives, different whatever. And I agree that a lot of those people weren't equipped to almost hope for the things that they needed. There was almost a, I'd be really happy if I could just get this. And it was like, no, I'm in the background going, no, you want more, you know. <laughs> you don't like that glare, you know. It, it's really, it is a really hard thing to actually, and part of it's knowledge and part of it's just the not accepting what you've been used to and asking for something better or saying, well, no, you tell me how, this is my, this is what my issue is, this is what I need. What, what can your creative brain come back and tell me? Can about? I jump in there too? Because I think this is a very OT thing, being an OT, but... I know when I've gone to workplaces and people have said, look, I'm having these issues, it's having somebody come in and look at your individual needs mm. as well and assess you for your individual needs within the environment you're working in. And I think that really works too because it might have, might have been that they came up and said a flashing light or something like that. And I think sometimes because people aren't aware that those services are available to go mm. out and assess, they don't use them. So it's, I don't know what I don't know. But keeping in mind that they are out there and they're going to be individualised to yourself mm. and what you need as well. Actually, Sandy, following that up, I don't know if you're aware of a service called Job Access. Um, you are? Okay. So, and the Employment Assistance Fund. So, and that's a case of actually a government provided service that will come and tailor and listen to the, the person's manager the, or if they're a manager, the person, but you know, the, the, the parties in the process and actually come up with individual answers. Um, hi, thank you all for being here. My name is Patricia and my question is mainly for Andrew. Um, because our built environments are often created and designed by the standards and understanding of able-bodied people, you all have mentioned that there's often a misguided perception that because a person with a disability is functioning and adapting to an inaccessible environment that everything is fine and good. How do I, as a person with a disability, set a standard to where I'm not just adapting to an environment but kind of advocating for what I need in the situation? Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's a uh, great um, question in the sense that, yeah, I think I'm certainly uh, guilty of that as well in the sense of, like, I have gone through uh, um, periods where I have just simply 
um, accepted something for as it is and adapted myself to that rather than rather than put my hand up and said no you're this that's the thing that needs to change not me um, and that is I think that requires a lot of confidence I think um, that that's certainly I think something that people with disability have a have an anxiety or worry about that they that particularly in areas like um, employment and jobs and, and things like that they're worried um, that by um, asking for things that they are going to jeopardize um, or make or be seen as uh, as a problem to be solved and that is so sad because it's, it's not them they should not be the ones that need to change themselves to fit something that doesn't work for them and this is where I've been I've been massively influenced by joining the Dawn Network because that's been a re and that sort of links into the previous question we had about the, the flashing lights and not knowing what you don't know uh, is that not knowing that I couldn't ask for things I didn't ask for things because I thought it was incumbent upon me to sort myself out. Um, and we really need to get over that idea that we are, that other people are making those decisions for us. No, we are the subject matter experts on ourselves. We are the source of truth. Please, you know, you will listen to us because we are the experts. We are the ones who are leading this forward uh, and our experience is more valuable than gold in that respect. So it's sort of talking about the, the flashing light scenarios, like just because we didn't know necessarily at the time that we could ask for that, by joining various groups and linking things together, um, like say getting the Faculty of Health Sciences in the OT department and be talking with the architectural department, linking them together in a group, um, it's, it's all about that communication and then we can feed off each other and, and develop those ideas. And it's about, yeah, it's about knowing that you don't know, sorry, wrong word, not knowing Knowing that you don't know something, then you can at least find out that you think maybe those people might have an idea that something could be improved. I think self-advocacy is, is a, something that kind of grows eventually. I mean, the, the fact that I'm a particularly confident um, self-advocate now, um, I was not, you know, 10, 15 years ago. It's something that comes with experience and maturity and with finding good networks over time and also having encouraging and supportive family and friendship networks around you. Um, you know, and, and for example, now I will demand that, that something is, is adapted for me rather than me adapting for it as opposed to 10 or 15 years ago, I might have been a bit more timid and, and not as confident um, to, to demand those sorts of things. So when I, a few weeks ago, booked a, a restaurant for my friends and I to go and have dinner, well, they all looked at the menu, but I wanted to look at it independently and I couldn't because their website was not accessible. And when I called and they simply referred me to the website, I explained to them my disability and said, I'm about to come, I'm about to spend money, I'm a customer, could you please send me a Word document of your menu? And they did, but it took some convincing. Um, a couple of years ago, I threatened to change banks because I couldn't um, access the online banking app because you had to be able to see to click the letters and numbers for your password. You couldn't do it by simply typing. You had to use a mouse. Now, I called and I said, what is your solution here? If you don't come up with one, I will have to change banks. And so, but, but those sorts of things come with age and, and experience. Um, and I think it's, it's always good to reach out to networks, whether it be the deaf community or, or the vision impaired community, and to ask what people have done in certain circumstances, because they're, they're the best people who can give you advice, because they're in similar situations. 
And, and Victorian government's done some interesting things as well. They have a self-advocacy resource unit and they're running projects called Voice at the Table, which kind of focus on building self-advocacy skills for people with disability as well. I would just like to pick up on something you just said then, as about the bank, where you said, I will have to change banks. It's like, it's more actually that you used your power to say, I have the power to change banks because you are not good enough for me. So I think that's that change, that understanding that, you know, our money is as good as anyone else's and we deserve to be, you know, that level of equality. And we can change um, and go somewhere else if it suits us. So we are not powerless or helpless in that respect. So. I can tell you that threat um, got the bank into swift action and I didn't uh, change banks because they came up with a, a workable solution. So it was, you know, yeah. that stuff works. So <laughs> we maybe you got more empowered and, exactly. and you got something out of it. Also. And I got what I wanted. <laughs> and many other people after me um, wouldn't have had to have uh, put up with that kind of, um, kind of service. We will I'll just quickly go back to the panel and we will have to wrap up. If I can get each of you to, um, I guess, share some final remarks with the audience. Well, I'll, I'll go first and just say that, again, off the back of that, that question is that... Uh, don't be, for those people with disability, don't be afraid to um, value your own knowledge as, as, as powerful and as uh, useful as it is, and be confident in being the subject matter expert in yourself. And on the other side of that coin is people with, without the disability who are wanting to assist and that, please don't be afraid to ask questions and to, to know and to not feel as though you're going to trample on things or anything like that. So, there's no reason we're not, we shouldn't be communicating and joining those networks and building those bridges. I would totally support that and I would totally, totally back that up. I think, you know, don't be afraid to talk, most definitely. Don't be afraid to acknowledge too, and I'm talking about health professionals as well as architects and builders, when you don't know something. Because we are not the experts in absolutely everything. We too have to go and find out things. And one of the way of doing that is talking to people who are subject matter experts in their own field and being able to work with them collegially to come to some sort of goal that has been determined by all as well. Yeah, I think there's enormous, enormous power when 36% of Australian households contain a person with, you know, include a person with disability and the power of ex-banker, um, you, th you, you think about how much market that is. That's, it's an enormous yeah. amount of money, whether it's tourism, whether it's banking services, whether it's supermarket services. And so I think the, the connection of networks of people with disability that can start to um, push those agendas and get corporates to start, you know, encourage corporates that are doing a good job because oftentimes when a corporation does something good, there's not a lot of recognition for it. They absolutely get slammed when they do something wrong. There's a bit of a balance of the two, but use that purchasing power. I'm going to be really naughty and add one thing, which, which is you know, we have a system of green star ratings, talking about sustainable buildings. We have green star ratings. People buy into those. Organisations, when they're going to move head offices, say, we're only going to have a five-star green rating or a four-star green. It's the only place we're going to move to. And there's an economics behind that um, that says those buildings give you a return over time. It's worth paying a little bit to get the savings over time. Um, I'd really love to see accessibility ratings um, yeah. and to have a system. We've got livable housing guidelines that have got a little bit of that, but for, for every building. And it's that long-term economics of going, oh, my God, no-one's actually going to rent in this place because I've got a zero-star rating. Um, you know, I think there's, there's power in actually codifying that above compliance bit so that the economics 
um, the investment starts to change. There's a, the organisations that want to do the right thing can start putting their money where their mouth is. So and rewarding those organisations yeah, exactly. with that fireside yeah. rating. Maybe yeah. you know, give them an award, say, for accessibility. You know, yeah. make it... Make a it positive. positive. Yeah. And so I would right. like to see what used to happen in um, the past, where you used to have councils that would have styles on windows and doors of shopping centres and businesses that were accessible. Mm -hmm. And people knew about it because they were put on maps and everything like that. That seems to be yeah. something that's slightly gone off the radar, but I think it would be excellent to bring back on. And we have the technology to do it more so than ever. Thank you very much to our panel, Andrew, Sandy, Jason, and also thank you to Stephen and Jeremy. Thank you very much for attending today. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.